This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, If you have a Bible, you have it on your uh, app, your phone app. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6. We're kind of taking this year to teach through the book of 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one under the seat in front of you. You can pull that out and turn to page 556. And uh, it'd be really helpful if you did, because we're just going to kind of walk through, and you'll be able to track with us. That's how we teach the Bible here. We just kind of walk through a passage, read through it, and explain it, and try to apply it. So if you're new to that kind of a thing, uh, then it'll really help you to track along. And even if you're not new, it'll help you to track along. So we're in 1 Corinthians 6. Let me just say two quick things before we jump in uh, to this today. I'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Uh, The first one is, I'd like to ask for prayer, if I could. and uh, in, in, if you're new here, you may not know, we're part of a, um, a family of churches called Sovereign Grace Churches, and uh, we have a pastor's college where we train uh, uh, men for the ministry. And so uh, this week, I'm teaching there in Kentucky all week at the pastor's college, and so it's kind of a nine-to-five daily intensive all-day teaching on the doctrine of salvation. So I'd appreciate if I could just ask you to pray for me. Uh, I would uh, really appreciate that. And some of you are new, may not even know we had such a deal where we train, and so it's good for you to know about that. And uh, if you could pray that I have clarity, energy, and uh, that I'm able to, uh, you know, teach these uh, young whippersnappers something uh, of, about being a pastor. At least I've got some mistakes to share with them, which I'm sure will be helpful. Uh, secondly, I want to say last week we had a whole message, and, um, you know, a big part of it was uh, that uh, someone in the church, not our church, this is Corinth, someone in Corinth was uh, committing incest, and, and I didn't give a heads up to parents. That was the theme. So uh, today is about lawsuits. There's a list of sexual sins, which I'll read and define, but not explain. However, next week, uh, the passage, if you read, I'm not making this stuff up. This is the Bible, okay? So next week uh, in the Bible uh, is, uh, will be a teaching about sexual immorality because the Corinthians were visiting prostitutes. And so there will be a, a, um, an explanation from the text of what uh, uh, the spiritual reality of joining lives in sexual intercourse. So it will not be graphic, but if you normally keep your elementary kid in the uh, auditorium, I'd recommend just planning on next week taking them to children's ministry during the sermon, and we'll remind you of this next week, uh, and it will be taught realizing sixth grade and up is with us in the room. So I didn't give a heads up on that last week. I thought it'd probably be helpful to let you prepare for next week, and then I think if you like to keep your kids in, if I remember, I think we're good for the rest of the book. But uh, the, these three sections were, uh, were uh, dicey because uh, that church was dicey and, and God deals with it directly. Okay, let's pray and we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for your word to us and we love it. Your word is life. Uh, it's like honey on our lips, the scripture says. It's joy to our soul. And so we pray you would open the scripture and breathe into our hearts today. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction and correction where we need it. I pray that you would bring encouragement for all of us and strength because you would show us Christ. Show us Jesus Christ in the text today. And may your grace uh, give us a vision for what life and community could really be. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been a part of a church conflict? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. 
part of a church conflict? Or have you ever observed a conflict in a church? Have you ever been a member of a church for more than 24 hours? If the answer is yes to that, then the answer will be yes to the previous two questions because the church is made up of people and people are sinners and sinners bring conflict. There's an old joke story that's frequently told, but I'm going to dust it off because it applies today to the passage we're going to look at. It's a story of a guy who was uh, stranded on a desert island, and for years he lived in seclusion all by himself uh, as a castaway on a desert island. And finally, a rescue party found him, and when they found the man alone on the island, they noticed that there were three huts that he had constructed on the island. And so when they uh, rescued him, one of the guys said, hey, I thought you were alone. And he said, well, I was alone. I am alone. And he said, well, there's three huts here. What, what is that about? And he said, well, the first hut, that's my house. I constructed that as my place to live in. And uh, the second hut, that's my church. That's where I go to church on Sundays. And then they said, well, what is the third hut? And the man said, well, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> And the story resonates with us because it points out that there can be problems and conflict and church departures in a church of one. And so when you add more people to the mix, it becomes troublesome. Christians have disagreements, and sometimes they cannot be easily solved with just a single conversation or a text or an email. Sometimes we can't work things out and we get stuck. And here's the key. When we get stuck, what we do reveals so much about us, and it reveals so much about the church as well. In our culture, one common response when there is conflict or burgeoning disagreement is just to leave and check out and find another church down the street. That's a common approach to avoid the thorny, painful, sometimes painful process of reconciliation. We just find another church. And because conflict is really an opportunity for us to grow, when we just depart, when we just bail on a conflict situation with a Christian in a church, we miss out on an opportunity to grow. We stunt our growth. And we also miss out on an opportunity to give witness to the power of the gospel. Because Jesus died so that we could be one, so that we could be reconciled to one another. And we demonstrate that through walking together through disagreements so that we might be one. He reconciled us to himself, and he reconciled us to one another. Another response is the opposite of leaving. It's fighting. It's digging in our heels and fighting when we have a disagreement. And that is the Corinthian response. Now, it should be noted, they didn't have another church to go to. This is, they're a first-generation church. Paul, the missionary, was bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, these Greeks. And so this is the church. The church in Corinth is the church in Corinth. There's not the Baptist church and the Catholic church and the Methodist church and the non-denominational church. There's the church at Corinth at this point in history. So they didn't have that option. But what they did was, rather than solve their conflicts inside, they took their conflicts outside. They didn't leave the church, but they took the conflict outside of the church and sought to, well, sought an adversarial approach in the courts to dealing with their 
problems. And that's what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 6. So today we're going to cover 1 Corinthians 6 through 11, page 556 in the, in the Bibles, uh, in, the, in the room there. And uh, this is God's word. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brothers go to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, it's worth asking, what does this have to do with chapter 6? It seems like Paul's just talking stream of consciousness to the Corinthians, like we're going to talk about putting an immoral brother outside the church, now we're going to talk about lawsuits, then we're going to talk about sins that, that uh, used to characterize your lives. What is it that ties these two together? Uh, is it just a list of crazy stuff happening? Because Corinthians, I mean, this is so much a reality TV show church situation. The stuff that they're dealing with, it's, it's just out of control, the church. And so um, what is it that connects them together? Well, these two chapters really are connected together. And here's the thing between them. If you look at the first four chapters, which we spent months covering, uh, you'll remember that Paul is addressing the Corinthians for their pride. They are a proud church. They, they think they're spiritual. They think they're wise. They think they're reigning in life as kings. They think they've arrived. They think they don't need Paul. And, and so they are an arrogant church. Uh, and the thing about pride is pride is blinding. We, we don't see our blind spots in areas that we are proud. And that is clearly the case with the Corinthians. They don't know. They don't have an accurate self-assessment of the church. And also they don't know what it means to follow a crucified Messiah that suffered and gave his life for those he loves. They don't understand these kinds of things. And, and that's why Paul is writing to them, because they're not living in a way that reflects Jesus, and yet they think they're great. They think they're the hottest church you know, in the history of churches. They, they think they have arrived. And, and so Paul takes two in this case, and in a third scenario we'll look at next week. But he takes these scenarios that just say, hey, look, here's the wake-up call for how mature you really are. That's why in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated among 
pagans. He's saying, this is actually happening, guys. This is serious. You may not be as mature. You may have some needs that, that you need to acknowledge. Or in this chapter, he opens with the same idea. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law? He's saying, look, how, how dare you do something like this? You're, you're not what you really think that you are. So there's a level of surprise because they aren't acting like they are. And he means to, to, to bring humility to them so they need, see their need for God. And they embrace Christ and his gospel in a fresh way. They repent. See, he's saying because you've been changed by the gospel, act like who you are, not like who you were. In chapter 5, he said, he used the picture of unleavened. You are unleavened. Be who you really are as a church. You've got unleavened. You've got leaven. You've got this poisonous sin in the church. Remove it. Be like who you really are. And that's what he does in this chapter as well. So the common theme is... Uh, you're not quite what you're bragging to be, but God has done a great work in redeeming you. So be like who he's made you to be. That's the common theme. Jesus forgave your sins. He rose to give you new life. So now live as new people. Be different because Christ has made you different. The church in Corinth looks too much like the culture. The problem is not that they're in a worldly culture. The problem is not, as someone said, that the church is in Corinth. The problem is that too much Corinth is in the church. And so he's saying Christ has rescued you, and you think you're wise and arrived. Listen, you're not representing Christ. You're just like the world. You're to be a light in the darkness. Jesus has rescued you to be different as a people together. And really what's happening is you're as dark as the darkness. And in some cases, last week we saw you're acting darker than the darkness. You're, you're offering no light to the surrounding culture. So in a series on community, which this whole year we're looking at in 1 Corinthians, what does it mean to be in Christian community in a church? In a series on community, we want to pay special attention to these sections because what they're saying is the gospel changes our lives individually and should change our lives together so that Christ can, can re- we can represent Christ to the world. So act like who you are in Jesus, not what you used to be. The first section he's saying, act like saints. Act like saints who will reign. We sang this morning about eternity, that we would reign with Christ. And uh, that's what he says here. Verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The saints are the Christian. Every Christian is called the saint in the New Testament, a holy one. That is one who is set apart for God. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world is what he says here. So he's, he, Paul is, is saying, why are you bringing your grievances, verse 1, if you have a grievance, why are you bringing it before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Why are you bringing your grievances before unrighteous? What they're doing is they are suing one another. So there's disagreements. Someone is claiming some kind of damage is done to them of some sort, and then they are going into the legal system to sort that out. Now, the, the uh, Corinthian culture was known to be very litigious. This is not unusual that they're having lawsuits. It was common in their culture. So they're looking just like their culture. And the thing about the law, the uh, law in Corinth, it wasn't like people people grieve about uh, you know grieve about injustice in in our country. And there certainly are there certainly are legal uh, injustices, no question. 
but it's nothing like what it would have been like in the first century world where judges were known for their injustice. Judges could be bribed to render a decision. And even where there was no bribe involved, judges uh, always, uh, or typically rather, preferred the powerful. They were biased towards the rich, and uh, they took a stand against those who were needy or poor or outsiders. Now, we don't know the nature of the lawsuits that they're bringing before these unrighteous uh, judges. It could have been someone owed someone a debt. It could have had to do. It could be a family squabble over an inheritance, or we don't know what it is. But they, the problem is that they are going to unbelieving, unrighteous judges who are notoriously unjust, rather than trying to get some help to work things out from other Christians who could help them. That's why Paul says, why are you doing this? When one of you does this, why do you go to unrighteous judges instead of the saints? You're set apart. You're a people that's different. You've been taken out of the world and put aside uh, to be a culture, a society that looks different in the world so that when the world looks on you, they see Christ. That's that's the problem here. Uh, And so they uh, they are going to others. Now, Paul says... In terms of who you are, don't you know that you are saints and that you will reign? Verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? What does that mean? Well, he's talking about a future day, and the Bible says that we will reign with Christ. Exactly what it means that they will judge the world, I don't know. Uh, that we will, I don't know the specifics of what that looks like. And so rather than make something up, I will tell you, I don't know. I've studied it. I'm not exactly sure. There's lots of ideas. But I don't think the main thing is the details of what the judgment looks like. It's just that the people of God will rule and reign with Jesus Christ, the Savior. That is a promise in the Scripture. And he's saying, if that's the case, if you're going to reign, then uh, are, is any, are you incompetent, verse 2, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? So if you're in... in eternity going to reign with Christ, can't we settle something that's trivial, some kind of money that's owed, some kind of disagreement, some kind of suit over someone's reputation being damaged? Can't we deal with that in-house? Are are you not competent enough to handle that? Look what you're going to be handling. So act like who you are. Christ has given you his word. He's given you his spirit. You can work this out. Verse three, do you not know that we are to judge angels? What does that mean? I do not know. Uh, maybe Paul told them, he kind of sounds like they should know, uh, but the scripture isn't really clear on what it means to judge angels. But the point is just the same. If in the future you're going to be handed this significant role empowered by God, then can't you handle the much lesser role now? It's an argument from greater to lesser. If you're, give, if you're empowered, enabled by God and his spirit to do this, then can't we handle a small little squabble now? Can't we handle that. It's only small. You have God's word. You have his spirit. You can work things out. That's what he says in in verse three. Do you not know we'll judge angels? How much more than manners pertaining to this life? Verse four. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. What they're doing is shameful for a lot of reasons. But the first reason is you're not acting like those who are set apart. You're not acting like God's people. You're not acting like saints. You're going to the unrighteous for judgment. Can it be that there's no one? Look what he says in verse 5. Now, remember, this is a, this is a stinging rhetorical 
question. This is a beat down, this question, because if you've been with us for months, you know the Corinthians are all about wisdom. They're wise. Paul, Paul is not wise. They like wise teachers. And so Paul says to them, can it be, verse 5, that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Hey, if you're so wise, can't you handle a family squabble? He's sort of correcting them, putting them in their place on this. You can sort it out. One of the greatest takeaway points from this passage that just connects directly into our context One of the greatest takeaway points is that God wants to help us when we reach an impasse. God cares about conflict. God cares about disagreement. God wants to help Christians, and the means he provides for that is the church. If you're not part of a church, you're not known in a church, you don't have relationships in a church, then you miss out on one of the greatest benefits God offers to us, help in reconciliation. Help in working things out. Help in getting advice when you're at an impasse in a situation. Help when you are in a fight with someone. Help when you have challenges and conflicts. And the way Paul talks about this, the way he talks about it is it's like we should be able to get some help. Someone can help out with this situation. It's part of community life. And if I'm unknown, if I'm just showing up, and if you're a guest here, we're just glad that you just showed up on a Sunday. And if you're new and checking out the church, I'm not talking to you about this. I'm talking to people who are part of a church, who are plugged into a church. If I'm not known and I can't get help, there's a problem. It should be very natural. Paul's saying, you should be able to sort this out. It's brothers. It's a family issue. You can figure it out. God's given you the help, but that assumes a level of relationship. It assumes a level of humility. It assumes that we're looking to relationships in the church as a source of help, as a means of grace to help us work out conflict. It's just one of, there's so many things. We did a new members class yesterday and just went over all the biblical benefits of being part of a church. I didn't mention this one, but this is a significant one. And we all need that. I need that. Your pastors need that. As I was preparing, I, last night I just had this memory. It was, I can't remember how long ago it was, but I just had this memory of our whole pastoral team sitting at uh, Texas Land and Cattle uh, with, uh, I can't remember the restaurant. I obviously can't remember. I can't even remember all the details of the conversation, but I remember what I ate. So uh, we're at Texas Land and Cattle, and we're with uh, a very dear friend of ours, a pastor who is the regional leader for our group of churches in Texas named Billy Rays. And so we'd gone out to dinner with Billy, and we as pastors were having some things that we were just trying to sort of wrestle through, and we had some disagreement, and uh, we were a little bit at an impasse, just what I'm talking about here. And so we just said, Billy, can you help us? We trusted you. Can you help us? I mean, it, it's hard to get along with Rob. But no, just kidding. Just kidding. So, uh, so, so it is. Bob says it is. So it's two on one. And somebody text Pete. Let him vote in. He was, he was here back then. And, and so the four of us are sitting down with Billy. So each of us shared, well, here's my perspective on the problem. And someone else, here's my perspective on the problem. Someone, we all went around. Each one of us shared. We all had kind of different perspectives. We weren't. Uh, you know, in agreement on some issues. And so Billy just asked us questions, cared for it, and he said, hey, here's what I think. Here's what I think. And shared with us about the love of God and how God wanted, gave us some advice. Think about this and this person's perspective. It's just good to hear, have someone from the outside say, oh yeah, this person's perspective, this person's perspective. I can't even remember literally all the details of what we talked about. But what I can remember 
is it worked. It worked. God, God worked the issues, sorted those things out. We worked them out. But we needed somebody to help us. That, that, that's happened with me uh, in, my, uh, in my marriage at various times. Ginger and I have just needed someone to, hey, what do you think about this? We all need that. And we need a friend who can come alongside and help us. We need that with your kids. Maybe you've gotten, uh, I've gotten parenting advice over the years where there's something going on and there's a conflict and how can we get some help? Done that with my kids. Obviously, if you've got more than one kid, you've got siblings, you do that. But I've had situations where my kids are younger. They're all adults now. But when my kids were younger, uh, you know, I sat down with my kid. And another dad in the church sat down with his kid because our two kids had a problem. They couldn't work out. And we're helping to mediate that situation. That should be very natural, very common. It's not always comfortable. But that's community life, how we work things out. Listen, the church is to be a safe place for sinners to get help. It's to be a safe place so that things don't escalate and, in this case, end up in court, where, in their situation, the wealthy have advantage over the poor. But in the church, everybody has equal hearing. We're all sinners under Christ. We all get equal hearing. There's not some that are more powerful, and sometimes the most mature can be wrong, and the youngest believer can be right. So that's what the church is about, helping one another. Listen, I am thankful for professional, you know, counselors or professional mediators. We actually have someone in the church that's in the process of getting certified with Peacemaker Ministries, an attorney who's getting certified with Peacemaker Ministries to be able to do mediation, this very thing as an experienced, seasoned, credentialed professional. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for any counselor. But I don't think in most situations, if they're caught early on, you need any degree or any uh, uh, you know, long, tremendous training to, to help in these kind of situations. If something is very basic and it's caught very early on, most of us have a friend who could help us. If we'll humble ourselves and ask for help before it gets so serious that it's piled up with years of offense and years of bitterness and blindness so that you end up in court like these people have done. The key is asking for help. The key is just saying, hey, listen, what if we got someone to sit down with us and just hear, hear this out? I might be wrong. I don't know. But we're not making progress. Could we have someone? And you have your small group leader sit down with you or a trusted friend or a pastor or someone like that. If that was the practice in the church, how many marriages could be saved? Now, there's a place for significantly trained people to bring marriage counseling in crisis for sure. But early on, what, what we saw in the video from Paul Tripp today, early on, if people were raising their hand and getting help and inviting help early, what could be avoided? How many business relationships where people are in the church together could be preserved if early on someone said, hey, you know what? The church is the place to mediate differences. The church is the place where you get help. If this chapter says anything, it doesn't just say don't, go to get, don't have a lawsuit with a believer. It says get help in the church. He has to say it multiple times. Isn't there anyone there? Listen, and these are very immature Christians. He's saying go to the Corinthians who are whack believers. They're immature you think, I mean, the most basic believer in this church is, is more mature than the average Corinthian Christian, okay? He's saying, can't you just go to another Christian who knows a little Bible and has the Spirit and is objective and will listen? Can't you get some help there? How much more in a church like this where we've got mature Christians all over the place that could help us? 
The church is, what if we really believe the church is the place where in community we work things out and when we can't work things out, we invite help from a Christian who says, I get it. I got problems too. I got conflicts too. I've been through, yeah, I've been on the other seat, the other side of the table where someone's helping me. I'd be glad to help you. I'd be glad to listen. I'd be glad to offer some ideas and help. How many business partnerships could be saved? How many friendships could be rescued? How many wouldn't leave the church if someone just said, hey, I got, I need some help instead of, I I can't stand it anymore. I'm out of here. If you're a guest here, and we've got a lot of new people at Grace Church, if you're a guest and you're new, we do everything we can to welcome you. We've got coffee with the pastors tonight. We've got connects, all this stuff to welcome you. But if you're coming here from a church where you have a conflict and you just left because you couldn't work it out, the best thing for you is not to be in this church. The best thing for you is to return there and raise your hand and say, can, can we get some help? I'm not running away from this. I'm not running away. And you go back and you talk to a leader, a pastor, you say, let's work this out. And maybe you stay there and demonstrate the power of the gospel. You're welcome here. We love you. But that's, that could be the best thing that could happen to you is that you stay in a church where you have a conflict because the church is the place. Now, maybe you get it worked out and the Lord is telling you to be in a different church. That's possible. I don't know. But, 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 but if there's something that's not worked out, that needs to be first priority. So act like saints. You're going to judge angels. You're going to judge the world. Can anybody help you with this in the church instead of going to court? Number two, act like family who puts others first. Look at verse five. Can it be that there's no one there wise enough to settle a dispute between church members? No, between brothers. But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud. Act like family. The the language is so penetrating, isn't it? He says, can't you settle a dispute that's a family matter? You are brothers. Paul goes right to identity. Who has God made you in Christ? He's made you saints set apart. So help one another as those who are set apart. Here, he's made you family. Your brothers and sisters help one another. We're all brothers and sisters because we have a common father who has adopted us into his family. So our bonds are deep. Look, he's saying you are brothers. The bonds of when you are a part of a church, your bond with other people is deep. It's not a throwaway relationship. It's not, well, okay, whatever. You know, I could just kind of sort of move on. No, the Lord has put you in, uh, in meaningful relationships that aren't just come-and-go relationships. And this is way too rare in the church today. We just have so many people just showing up at a meeting, and that's it. Doesn't know anybody, can never get help, no relationship. But the Lord has so much more for us. He has for us to be connected with brothers and sisters, and family works things out. We're going to be together for eternity. And the reality is that if you have blood family members that aren't Christians, your church family members are actually in some ways closer than blood family. We're going to be together forever. We are joined in Christ. There's no, that's that's close. And so you may have an unbelieving family member and you're, you're, you have less in common with them. Even though you grew up together in the same house, you have less in common with them at, in the areas that matter most than you do someone who's in Christ. 
That's a brother and a sister. So here's another concern. Why are you brothers and sisters taking trivial disagreements before unbelievers is what he says. To be clear, so he says you, you go, you, one brother goes to law against another brother. Now let me say something to be very clear here. Please hear this. Uh, he's talking about civil litigation. He's talking about going to law court when you're settling a dispute and trying to win some kind of damages. He's not talking about like a criminal matter. In a criminal matter, we don't say, let's just work that out as brothers and sisters. If there's a case of domestic abuse in the church, a husband's beating his wife, we're calling the police. Because Romans 13 says that God has given authority to to the civil government to bear the sword, that is to punish wrongdoers. So if someone is doing something like that, abusing a child, abusing a spouse, abusing an elderly person, stealing money from people, which is illegal, that's a crime, that's not a matter for brothers to just kind of sort out, if somebody's doing a crime, we're calling the police. Now, we can come alongside them and help encourage Uh, and do whatever we can to support them. But what's being talked about here is not a criminal matter of let's just work out brothers that you are breaking the law and criminally harming a person. That's not what's going on here. That's a different approach. We call the police then. On this one, he's saying if you have a difference and you're, why are you going to court about something that is Uh, You just have a difference. You have a disagreement. It's talking about disagreement, not punishing wrongdoers. It's talking about settling a disagreement so that I can win damages. It's what we would call a civil law suit. That's what he's talking about. So uh, what what is his concern with that? He says, brother goes against brother, and that before unbelievers. That before unbelievers. So he doesn't want disagreements in the church brought before those who are on the outside. Why? He's not afraid of the world knowing that Christians have dirty laundry. That's not the issue. It's the witness that says, you can't even sort this out as a church. You can't even sort this out as, as believers. What, what, it, it removes the, 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 the fact that, that we are different in the church. It removes the witness. The unbeliever looks at that and goes, wow, you're just like everyone else or worse than everyone else. And it removes the witness. I read a story, a true story about a church and, uh, in Massachusetts a number of years ago, and the story opened up, it's, it's written in a book, the story opened up with the pastor getting punched out at the communion table and knocked out on the ground. And as you read the story in the background, what happened was a new pastor had come in he, into the church, he was going to church members, getting gossip on other church members, and then manipulating those people and saying, well, I know this about you, I know that about you. Terrible situation, true story. So the deacons wanted to fire him, but every time they wanted to make an announcement, he spoke into the mic and said, okay, and just wouldn't let him make an announcement. So finally, what happened was a guy got up and punched him. And when he punched him, the church went nuts. There was like a lady in the, in the choir threw a hymnal at somebody. And there's a melee in the aisle. Somebody took the flower arrangement and threw it up in the air and water came down. And they said, a, the, the guy wrote, hey, a Presbyterian had a full immersion baptism in the middle of it. And so... <laughs> This terrible fight, and then the cops come. The cops come, and they take them to court. They have a court appearance, and so the pastor, the manipulative bad guy, pastor's on one side, but the deacons are no better for punching him out, and they're on the other side, and the judge looks up at it, and the judge 
is a Jew. He plays on, I don't remember the name of the temple, but he played, it had been referred to in the story, he played on the temple softball team. These guys played on the Baptist, Emmanuel Baptist Church softball team. And he looks up and goes, hey, don't I know you guys from softball? And he said, yeah. And he rushed reading through, what happened there? And it's a fist fight that the cops have to come on Sunday morning. And this is what the judge said. You guys get out of here and work this out. He said, I don't know, Jewish man, I don't know if your Jesus allows this kind of stuff, but the Commonwealth of Massachusetts does not. That's the point. Their witness was trashed. Why would this man who didn't know Christ find Christ appealing at all when he looked at how Christ's people responded together? That's why he says, why does brother take brother before unbelievers? You don't look any different. Act like family who puts one another over yourself. And look what he says. If you can't work it out, hey, wait a minute. The fact you even go, verse 7, the fact you even have a lawsuit, you've already been defeated. So you win money. You lost. You lost. Even if you, the case, even if the judge decides for you, you lost. Your brother lost. The church lost. The reputation of Jesus Christ lost. You're all losers because of this. No one won anything. He says, wouldn't it just be better, verse 7, to suffer wrong? Why why not just let it go and lose it? Wouldn't it be better to be defrauded? What's better for the reputation of Christ? If you can't work it out, wouldn't it be better to let something go than to put the reputation of Jesus at risk and the church at risk between... And he's not talking about a Christian and a non-Christian. He's talking about two people that are both not just professing Christians, but real Christians. Why, why wouldn't you just let it go no matter how much you win? The mission of the gospel loses. And that's a major concern. And we say, well, why, wait a minute. Why, you've got rights. Go to court. Hey, listen, this idea, he's, why not suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? That sounds very Jesus-y. Jesus' ethic is non-retaliation. Jesus says if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. And we want to build about 15 excuses for why he didn't mean what he really said and why these two Christians should be arguing in court for unbelievers and justifying that. But the ethic of Christ is non-retaliation. That, that, that's how he lived his life. That's why he died. That's why you're saved, because the Savior had a non-retaliatory ethic. And when he was nailed to a cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that's why we're born again today. And he's saying, so why shouldn't the church look like Jesus? Why are you taking a, he calls them trivial, petty matters, not criminal, petty disagreements. Why are you trashing the reputation of Christ because you look nothing like him? Isn't anybody, even in your pathetic, immature church in Corinth, my words, not Paul's, even there, can't somebody do something? The answer is yes, somebody can do something, but they don't want to go that way. They don't want to act like family. They're not interested in representing Jesus. They want to take an adversarial approach and get their way. And it destroys churches and people when they should be saying, can we get some help here? Number three, act like those who have new life. Act like saints 
act like family, act like those who have new life. So he goes and he's he's basically saying, you guys are acting like you've never been converted. And then in verse 9, he's going to remind them of what they were converted from. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So if you're not converted, if Jesus... If you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior and you're not declared righteous in him, you don't have eternal life. And so he's reminding them. And he gives a list of sins here. He's saying, look, you've been changed by the gospel, so act like who you are, not like who you were. You're saints, so sort out the issues. You're family, so sort out the issues. And don't remember, you've been changed by the gospel, so you have a new identity. And he says, look at who you are, remember who you are. And he gives several categories. There's a category of sexual sin here. He says, do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. That was the word we looked at last week. It's porneia. It's, it's, it's a word that means uh, committing sexual sin. So those who, it's not meaning if someone commits, commits a sin one time and is repentant. It means someone who has an ongoing lifestyle of sexual immorality demonstrates that they, have, they don't have a changed life by Jesus Christ. Demonstrates the Spirit of God's not living in them. Doesn't mean they can't fall. Um, the church is a place for sexually broken people who do fall at times to get help and repentance and get back up on their feet. He's not saying, you know, uh, that it can never happen. But he's saying if, if you live that way without conviction, without repentance, then do not assume you're a Christian because that person does not inherit the kingdom of God. He says adulterers. So that's a little more specific type of sexual sin. Adultery is having uh, sex with someone who's married. If you're married and you have sex with someone who's not your spouse, that's adultery. Having sex with a married person. He says neither uh, men, this, and now I'm in nine, I'm, I'm, gl- I'm putting the sexual sins together in one category, so I'm skipping around a little bit. Number nine, uh, so sexual immorality, uh, number nine, adulterers, and then he says, nor men who practice homosexuality. I've taught on this before, I'm going to do some more teaching uh, on uh, gender, gender identity and homosexuality. Uh, our, our culture talks of sexual orientation and sexual identity. The Bible addresses behavior. So it's a bit of a different, the Bible understands um, some, some of our sexuality in, in ways that are different than modern culture. So it's talking about behavior here, and it says men who practice homosexuality. Uh, there's two Greek words here that's, that are translated, um, practice homosexuality, and they're actually in the ESV, they're footnoted and explains what they mean. Uh, it's, it, they're, they're, they're words that are graphic in nature. They describe the active and passive participant in male homosexual intercourse. Those two words, and they just make it uh, practice homosexuality. So he says sexual, sexual immorality. He says adultery. He says those who practice homosexuality, those, uh, those, don't you remember, those are not people who inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to other categories. Now, the church likes to camp on, on sexual sins, we like, to, we like to cast stones at sexual sins. People out there, those people. Look where he goes next, though. Or the greedy. Wow, we honor that in Frisco. And we, we, like, celebrate that. You're like man on the block if you do that. The Bible says, no, if you live a life that is what can I get and taking things for myself and, and what can I accumulate, and you're not selfless and giving, you're greedy, then that represents you've never had the Spirit of God in you. You're not living for the kingdom. So don't assume that you'll inherit the kingdom. He says greedy. He says swindlers. That's someone who scams people. Thieves. 
That's someone who steals from people. So there's this list of what I want and what I do to get it. I'm greedy, I swindle, I steal, something belongs to somebody else. If you live that kind of, doesn't mean if you stole one time, doesn't mean if you battle greed, but it means if that's who you are, then you shouldn't assume that everything's okay. Drunkards, he says, those who give themselves over, who, who uh, use substances as a lifestyle, doesn't mean you got drunk at a party, doesn't mean you got drunk two or three times, it means as a lifestyle that you, rather than uh, looking to the Lord, you substitute with any kind of sort of substance. And people in that situation need help. We want to be able to help them. But he says, if you live that as the lifestyle, then that's the kingdom of God doesn't reside in you. And ultimately, idolaters, he says. Idolaters are those who substitute other gods for God. So everyone who doesn't know Christ is living as an idolater. We all battle idolatry, but they live as an idolater. So this is what he says. So he says the Corinthians come from all kinds of backgrounds because what does he say? He says in verse 11, and such were some of you. You used to live that lifestyle. You, you, that used to describe who you were, your daily practice. Uh, your, that, that's who you were, that, that, what you did. But he said such were some of you, but you were washed. That means your sins were washed away. You could be a picture of baptism as well. You were sanctified, that is, you were set apart. You were justified, that is, you were declared right before God. So he's saying, think about who you are. Now, we want to look at all of those things oftentimes and say, wow, thieves, I'm not that. Adulterers, I'm not that. But Paul, most of the chapter, that's just a, a little list at the end. Most of the chapter is about Christians that can't get along. And many of us, if we're honest, aren't going to raise our hand and say, I'm not that. We say, no, I am that. And Paul is saying, Jesus saves us for a purpose, to make us different, to join our lives with people that are different, to reflect who he is. And that shows up in disagreements when we get stuck and cannot get along. What we do at that juncture communicates much about who Jesus is to us and much about the purpose of the church. So I want to close by just saying this. Maybe you're here today and you need help. You say, I'm not about to take someone to court. That's good. I'm not about to sue someone. That's good. Nobody delivered, you know, court papers uh, in the church service. We didn't have, I don't know who does that, the sheriff or whatever. We didn't have anybody delivering (laughs) papers, uh, you know, here uh, to call someone to court uh, this morning, praise God. But you may say, I'm not doing that. But in my heart, there is a difference and it is an un. It's unreconciled between me and someone. It could be you and your spouse. could be you and one of your older kids. could be you and someone in the church. could be the reason you don't go to community group anymore because I'm mad at that person. They offended me. They forgot me. They did whatever to you. They may have really done that. I'm not saying you're in, uh, they're innocent. But that, I don't go back there to group. Maybe you haven't been here on a Sunday morning in a while because there's a dif- difference in offense. Maybe you have another church that you're disappearing from because there is an offense. Repentance looks like this, raising your hand and getting some help. Going to the person and saying, you know what? I don't know if I'm right. I don't know if you're right. But I know together we're not right. And uh, I want to get it right. Would you be open? Who would you be open to talking to? Let's agree on someone we can sit down with that we both trust and just talk it through and get some help. Why? Because we're brothers. 
Why? Because we're saints. Why? Because such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified before the Lord. The Spirit of God is in you, and he's speaking to you today to act and to respond. And let's all be a culture as a church that's not surprised. If two people get in a bitter disagreement in the community group, in the serving together in the children's ministry or neighbors or what, pick your spot. You can get, you can get offended in any, anything the church is doing. There could be some offense. Okay. And you can get offended with anybody. Can we just be a culture that's not surprised by that? That's not shocked by that. That's not, you're having a marriage problem. We're all having marriage problems. Can we just get that out there? And if you're not, you've got a different problem. You're a liar. So you've got a whole different issue. Can we just say that? Can we just say everybody's friendships aren't great? Everybody's just not having perfect life together. And if you are, you don't know anybody in the church. You're new. Wow, this is great. Everybody loves you. You just don't know us yet. We're just like the place you came from and everywhere. We've all got problems. But the difference is we've got a Savior and we've got a church. And we want to be a church as a community that values reconciliation enough that will say, let's embrace the awkward, let's embrace the difficulty, and let's, and let's represent Jesus well by being the church that looks like brothers and sisters. And we need the grace of God for this. So let's pray. Lord, we today ask for your grace and we ask for your help. Some of us in the room are convicted right now because we're separated from someone. Right now, we're actively gossiping about someone in the room or in the second service. Right now, we're mad at our spouse. Right now, we are just hoping we don't bump into that one person. Maybe we're at the first service because we think they're at the second service. It's just we don't want to bump into them because it's not right. Uh, And for all of us who are in that situation, Lord, we pray for much grace much grace to reconcile, to restore, to redeem. I pray that marriages where there's conflict, there'd be help and redemption of every marriage in the room. I pray for every young adult that's at odds with their parents, there'd be reconciliation and redemption. I pray for every leader that's offended a person, that that person's separated from them, that person would come and they could get reconciled. I pray for every every situation in the room and those that are coming that we don't even know yet. I pray that you'd make us a place of grace. Lord, help us to live out the name on the sign out front. Grace, church. Make us a people receiving your grace and extending your grace to other people. Help us to live like saints. Help us to live like family. Help us to live like those who have new life. Such were some of us. We need your grace and we need your help. Lord, for those entangled in the various temptations that are in that list of sins, greed or sexual sins or idolatry, those of us who are facing temptations in any of those, we pray we get help there too. Lord, because we become Christians doesn't mean the temptation disappears. So we pray that you would help us in each of those as well, God. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.